waiting for it. There it is. We are live. The Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law. And like we discussed in previous episode, it has nothing to do with inflation and everything to do with transitioning our economy to unreliable energy. And we asked the question, why does the left reject nuclear power? Also, the World Economic Forum, the biggest advocates of the Great Reset, seem to be scared of us. We talk about this and more in episode 359 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm doing great. Uh, I saw on Twitter on Tuesday night from an account called Election Wiz, the election wizard, Donald Trump has now ended the Clinton, Bush, and Cheney political dynasties. <laughs> Not too shabby. Nice. Jim, what do you got there behind you? What is that, a little postcard? Uh, it's got a... Nice little over face here? over there. Yeah. What is yeah. That? That's uh, that's our benefit dinner, which is coming up on October 21st. That's a Friday, uh, so it's not too far away. And that's uh, Yomi Park, who is uh, who is a escapee from the prison state in the most miserable place on earth, North Korea. And we're giving her the Heartland Liberty Prize, uh, which is seems a minor token compared to what she's had to endure in her life. But it's going to be a very special night if you want to uh, learn more information. Go to benefit.heartland.org. Fantastic. Also joining us for the third week in a row, Justin Haskins, editorial director at the Heartland Institute and co-author of Glenn Beck's latest book, The Great Reset, Joe Biden and the Rise of 21st Century Fascism. Justin, how are you? I'm doing I'm doing really well. I didn't realize it was three weeks in a row. Is that right? That's right. Can Last week, a- you, you came in like halfway, so we're counting it. Oh, that's right. Okay. I came in halfway, which sounds about right. So, okay. But, you know, I'll, I'll take it. Three weeks in a row. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm doing great. How, how are you guys doing? Oh, no one cares. Also, Chris Talgo, <laughs> senior editor at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. Doing good, Donnie. And I just wanted to uh, ask you, who who designed that amazing postcard? Uh, you I mean, know, it, it looks, like a, some... looks like a genius. Yeah, probably some really handsome guy. I'm not really sure. You can't really tell that from the design by itself. But um, so, anyways, let's uh, let's start off. Jim, you already kind of referenced this a little bit, but I I do want to start off with a moment of silence for Liz Cheney's political career. Okay, with that out of the way, uh, before we <laughs> before we get going, I want to put that message out to all of our listeners. That's 99% of you are still only listening to the audio version of the podcast. I understand. But if you want to join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time, you can. We are streaming on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Rumble, um, a whole bunch of places. If you look for us, you will find us. And you can uh, you can be in the conversation. You can put your comments and your questions in there in the live chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on screen like the one right here. Maybe we'll answer your questions on the fly. We'll see. And um, also, just, uh, you know, make sure to hit that subscribe button, write a review for us. It really helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from getting into more eyeballs. 
So, uh, gents, like I mentioned in the intro of the podcast, and uh, forgive me if I'm going a little quickly here, we got a lot to talk about, and we got Justin on the show, so that means we're going to go long on all of our topics. But uh, as I mentioned in the intro of the podcast, the World Economic Forum, biggest advocate of the Great Reset. If you're a constant listener, you know by now that uh, what the Great Reset is, uh, you know the work that... Justin and I have done specifically on it what the what the Heartland Institute has done in general to expose the World Economic Forum and their globalist goals. And this past week, there's been two things that have been brought to my attention. The first one is an opinion piece written by a managing director at the World Economic Forum published by The Globe and Mail. The piece is titled How own nothing and be happy sparked a misinformation campaign that targeted the World Economic Forum. So in this piece, the author explains how conspiracy theorists and anti-Semitic extremists have used an article published by the World Economic Forum to make the World Economic Forum look bad. So the article in question was published by the World Economic Forum in 2016. It was authored by Danish MP. Ida Aachen, and it was titled, Welcome to 2030, I Own Nothing, Have No Privacy, and Life Has Never Been Better. So I, I will mention that this uh, this article that I just read the headline of um, is not on the World Economic Forum website anymore. They took it down. So if you look for it, you're not going to find it. You have to find it via uh, um, uh, archive.org, but regardless... So this this article, the author discusses how the article went viral. It was probably Russian propagandist campaign, it says somewhere in this, and sparked a series of conspiracy theories. And there's a, a paragraph I'm going to read from this that I think was like designed in a lab. It's the perfect mixture of straw men, things that are crazy, and things that are true in an effort to make everything seem crazy. So I'm reading straight from this article. It says, Users on Twitter and Facebook, for instance, have spread doctored content to promote the falsehood that through the Great Reset, the forum is advancing uh, pernicious depopulation efforts. These include racist conspiracies that claim white people are the primary target of depopulation. And bad faith actors has also targeted the forum's coverage of the circular economy, economic systems that aim to eliminate waste by reusing raw materials rather than disposing of them, decrying it as a top-down agenda coming from unelected globalists looking to reshape the world in their image. Uh, there are just some examples among many. So that last half of that, that paragraph is not in misinformation at all. <laughs> it's absolutely true. In fact, the quoted part, unelected globalists looking to reshape the world in their image, I'm pretty sure was either authored by Justin or me specifically. <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised. But the point of the article is to suggest that misinformation is so rampant and that it represents a growing problem in society. And the author ends the piece with the following statement. And then I'm going to throw it to you, Justin, for your reaction. It, it's uh, The author writes, it also highlights how misinformation derails free speech. At the request of Miss Aachen, the forum removed all media around her piece because of the online abuse and threats she has faced. Action to prevent lies being accepted as truth can help avoid similar situations and promote genuine free speech, allowing us all to freely exchange ideas and opinions. In a world where the trolls often win, more forward-thinking conversations like the one Miss Auken tries to initiate will be tarnished. 
So, Justin, I want to start off with you because you're the one that sent me this piece. Uh, what, 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 what was going through your head when you sent it to me? Well, I, I think there's a there's a few things here. The first is, and and you know, there's been, I've actually had some communication with people at the at the World Economic Forum, mostly through social media, and I've gotten the same kind of uh, similar kinds of comments about how they understand the concept of misinformation and free speech. And I think this is a perfect example, especially at the very end of this, of how so many people, uh, elites especially, um, look at free speech and what it, and what it means. Free speech, they, they'll be the biggest champions in the world of free speech. They'll say free speech is essential and that it's, that, it's, that it's necessary that everybody have access to free speech and it's a human right, blah, 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 blah. That's what they'll say. But then what they'll also do is say, well, but free speech means you, have, you should have the ability to say things that are true, but you should not have the ability to say things that are not true. And the problem with that sort of free speech is who decides what is true and what is not true? Well, the people who are the ones making these statements are the ones who claim that they're going to do that, right? So then what they do is they tie in any kind of, of uh, like in this case, for example, where they talk about the prime minister or the, uh, the minister of parliament here who writes this article, people criticize it. And then she gets tons and tons of criticism. So she says, you know, I want to take that down. Mm -hmm. And that is somehow now people silencing her. Right. When in reality, it's not silencing anyone. It's just people criticizing her for saying something that she wrote. And because they're saying that the criticisms aren't valid, that's a form of, of uh, rejecting free speech. You can see how just totally insane all of this becomes when you adopt this approach and yet that is the approach that these people want to take on social media in the press generally uh it's incredibly incredibly dangerous because if we live in a world where the only speech you're allowed to have is quote-unquote true speech and the uh. only people who get to decide what's true are the people who are often the ones getting criticized then the only thing you're ever going to be allowed to say are the things that they let you say, which is not free speech at all. And that's exactly what this person is arguing for in this piece. Right. And, and what's really crazy about it is it, this topic in particular, the title of the article, which nobody who criticized it wrote, they wrote it, the world economic forum or uh, the, the, uh, or miss Aachen, they wrote it is, that in 2030 or in the future, or whatever, you'll own nothing and have no privacy and yeah. you'll like it. Right. If you if you write that statement, you can't <laughs> you can't complain when people are like, wait a minute, what? The whole point of them writing it, that writing an article this provocative is to get attention. Then right. they got attention and got so much attention that they pulled the article down, and now they're crying about it because they got too much attention for okay, it. Yeah, it was negative attention. I mean, 
remember the attention thing because I want to get back to that. But yeah, it's just like we're just an academic organization that explores ideas. Don't at me, bro. Like that's that's entirely <laughs> yeah. what this yeah. this article was. And here here's a good video of Klaus uh, and the rhetoric that he routinely uses, uh, speaking on behalf of a collection of the most powerful and inf influential people in the world. This is the type of things that Klaus Schwab, that the head of the World Economic Forum, has to say. Go ahead and play one of these clips, Andy. Let's also be clear. The future is not just happening. The future is built by us, <laughs> by a powerful community as you here in this room. We have the means to improve the states of the world. <laughs> Come on. But two conditions are necessary. The first one is that we act all as stakeholders of larger communities, that we serve not our only self-interests, but we serve the community. That's what we call stakeholder responsibility. And yeah. second, that we collaborate. And this is the reason why you find many opportunities here during the meeting to engage into very action and impact-oriented initiatives to make progress related to specific issues on the global agenda. all right stop stop the clip uh <laughs> jim, jim i mean he starts off saying that we design the future we all here have the tools to design the future and then when they have an article published on their website talking about what the future could be and then they freak out when people talk about it what are your thoughts about all this uh, listening to that clip and thinking about this subject this morning as we were getting ready for the podcast today, I, I was I recalled that line from the character Verbal Kent, played by Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects, where he says, the greatest trick the, dev the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he did not exist. Hmm. And here we have the World Economic Forum basically trying to convince the world that they and their agenda doesn't really exist, that it's a conspiracy theory. Uh, that their agenda, they, this says at the end of that clip of, you know, our global agenda. Uh, they, they say, no, there really is no global agenda. Uh, you know, these are not really just plans. These are just goals, you see. Uh, Klaus Schwab has dedicated his life to bringing together world leaders to try to find a better way to make the world a better place. Uh, yet they have it right here on film. And in fact, uh, we don't have a clip of it today, but we've played, I think, clips of this in the past because Klaus Schwab, Schwab has admitted that, yeah, the World Economic Forum, under my direction, has been able to install as the leader of several countries around the world, people right. who are basically the disciples of the World Economic Forum and our globalist agenda, including Justin Trudeau in Canada, uh, that absolute piece of garbage down in uh, New Zealand, Jacinda, I forget her last name, uh, Barrett, maybe I think it is. She she is a real piece of work, that one. Uh, you know, so again, they, they try to convince you that this is all... It doesn't really exist that if you talk about what the World Economic Forum's agenda is, if you if you listen to the words of Klaus Schwab and repeat them to other people, you are a crazy conspiratist nut job. And they right. are again, they're trying to pull off the trick that they don't even really exist when they do. The the World Economic Forum's agenda, which is clear to anybody who even just takes a cursory look at it or watches uh, video clips like we just shown or listen to a podcast like this is that the World Economic Forum's uh, agenda is uh, anti-freedom, 
It's uh, anti-individualist. Again, they talked about not self-interest. Uh, we as free market libertarian types around here, we believe that pursuing your self-interest within the law actually helps society as a whole. These, these uh, World Economic Forum globalists believe the exact opposite, that your free will, you living your life the way you think is best for you and your family is a dangerous thing and it makes the world worse. They believe this to their core. And so your agenda is to make basically make nation states meaningless, to make your individual and national sovereignty meaningless. And they mean it. And to say these things is not a conspiracy theory. This is an important conversation. They always talk about having a global conversation. Let's have a global conversation about this, about the World Economic Forum. Uh, I, I think people are going to start to wake up and I think they better for all of our sakes. Yeah, no, you're right. Even in that clip, he talks about how like we all have to do something. Stakeholders have to do something uh, to help the community, which when he says that he's obviously using the word community uh, in replacement of the collective <laughs> to just kind of mask this inherent socialism, all the stuff that he has to say. But uh, but Chris, I mean, I've personally talked about this article that used to be published by the World Economic Forum. Welcome to 2030. You have no uh, uh, you don't own anything, have no privacy, whatever. And I like make it a point to not misrepresent it, to not take it out of context or whatever. But this article seems to be just lumping me in with all of these anti-Semitic far right wing conspiracy theorists. I mean, that that's probably the goal of the article, right? Well, I think the goal of the article is for the W for the World Economic Forum to uh, portray itself as the victim in this. And I think that this is part and parcel to what the left, you know, does both in America and across the globe. Whenever you attack them, they play victim. So instead of defending their policies or defending, you know, their ideology, they, they you know, immediately pivot to, well, I'm a victim and you're an oppressor. So it's an it's an easy way for them to try to always, you know, get out of uh, these debates, because I think they know that if the debate is about the issue, that they're going to lose the debate. And the World Economic Forum, you know, I they 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 put out that article and they should have to defend that article. I mean, that is that is their policy stance. So I find it very strange that they put the article out and then the article gets, you know, blowback in the in the article and the authors, you know, are questioned as to why, you know, why are you putting this out? This is not what the people want. And then they say, well, now we're the victim and we claim victimhood. <laughs> and and you 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 can't criticize us because if you criticize us, then you're, you know, anti-Semitic or racist or whatever. So I this is just a a pattern that I've seen occur time after time after time yeah. throughout the past you know few years. Whether if you criticize Barack Obama, you are racist, even though it had nothing to do with his race, you know, just criticizing his policies. If you criticize, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren, then you're, you know, anti-woman, just on and on. I mean, the, the, the examples are endless. Yeah, no doubt. So I, I think that that we have to not not play that game and say, no, this is not about that. This is about the policy. And we're talking about the policy and really try to uh, stray from, you know, what they want us to get into and not and not go into the mudslinging and just stay very much policy oriented. That's what I try to do. And. You know, it's it's difficult to do sometimes, but I think right. that it's it, it, it's a strategy that, you know, will benefit uh, the right over the long haul. So so the second piece that kind of relates to all of us that I want to bring up is was brought to my attention by a constant listener, Abel Windsor, who's probably in the, the chat over there on the right right now. And uh, it's a piece from the World Economic Forum titled The Solution to Online Abuse. 
AI plus human intelligence. Now, the piece in and of itself is interesting. It talks about how artificial intelligence can be used to detect online abuse, probably similar uh, online abuse is the one that's being experienced by the World Economic Forum right now, I guess. And it's incredibly dystopian, and Justin and I will probably have more to say about this in future videos, but I want to focus on just the opening two paragraphs of this. So, Andy, when you've got this link ready, show it up on screen. Because it starts off, this is before the actual article starts off, it has a two-paragraph disclaimer. It says, readers, please be aware that this article has been shared on websites that routinely misrepresent content and spread misinformation. We ask you to note the following. One, the content of this article is the opinion of the author, not the World Economic Forum. And two, please read the piece for yourself. The forum is committed to publishing a wide array of voices and misrepresenting content only diminishes open conversations. So after seeing these, these first two paragraphs, it made me wonder, like, is the World Economic Forum scared of us? And I don't necessarily mean like us on this podcast or the Heartland Institute specifically or anything, just like us as just like the general population. Are they scared of us? Because up I until we started covering the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum largely flew under the radar. And now, like the term the Great Reset and even the World Economic Forum is common in the uh, conservative, Republican, libertarian lexicon. So, Justin, what do you think? Uh, you know, we're shining a light on them. Are they are they afraid of that light? What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I think the other day when we were on the phone, you know, I told you I'm, I'm struggling because in, in the past I, I viewed. So first of all, I had no idea before we started looking at the Great Reset. I had no idea who the World Economic Forum was. OK, no clue who they were. I heard of Davos and, and they World Economic Forum is the one that puts on the Davos conference every year. I'd heard of that, but I really didn't know that much about the World Economic Forum. Then once I started learning about them and realizing how well connected they were, how uh, how powerful so many of their members are, the kinds of language that they were using that supposedly we're all lying about, even though we're just direct quoting them all the time, you know, things like to achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country from the United States to China must participate and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. That direct quote that comes straight from the World Economic Forum's own website from Klaus Schwab himself, that whole thing, which is supposedly all just a giant conspiracy theory. Uh, you know, when I started seeing all of those things, I came to the realization that, no, actually, these people are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly dangerous. But there have been times lately where they just seem kind of pathetic. Yes, that's you know? the word I was going to use. Yes. They just seem kind of pathetic. Like every little insult, every little slight, everything that happens, they they are they're terrified, they're scared, they're worried all the time. They have in was it in this article? This which one was it that I showed you? I know we had an article that you and I were talking about where they specifically went to the they brought up the four chan message yeah, that, board. That's the first one I talked about. Yeah, yeah, where they talked about the four chan message board. For those of you who don't know, it's just this like. You know, it's it's a message board. It's a message board. It doesn't. They, they talk about how that's the root of all these horrifying conspiracy hmm. theories and all this stuff, right? And I'm I mean, saying to myself, your 4chan is out there, but you know, yeah, it's a real thing. 
It's a real thing. But these people are the World Economic Forum. Right. They have they have millionaires and billionaires and all. And so they're scared of 4chan. The 4chan message. Most people have never even heard of it. They're like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. And yeah. so now I, I can't tell if these guys are like truly nefarious Bond villain types, you know, trying to take over the world. They certainly look the part and have the money. Or if they're like, if they're like the 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 you know the rich kid villain in every '80s teen movie that you've ever seen, you know, wreaking havoc on the school, driving in their in their cars, picking on kids, but then yeah. at the end of the movie, some you know nerd punches one of them in the face, and they go crying back to mom and dad. Like, I honestly can't tell who these people are anymore because they they run away so quickly and maybe the best example of it and we didn't i don't think we have the ability to bring this up quickly but when they after after we worked so hard to explain to people what the great reset is in their own words what the world economic forum and others who are affiliated believe about the great reset when they finally had their great reset conference that they had been pushed back because of COVID forever. They finally had this, this big conference with these elites and they played this elaborate video, basically apologizing oh, for coming oh, up with the slogan. We, we have the video. Set. Let's play it right now. We, we played this before, <laughs> but this like... is, this is too great to not play again. Go ahead, Andy. Let's play this clip. Ah, no audio. Oh, there it is. We can reshape the world in ways we couldn't before ways that better address so many of the challenges we face. And that's why so many are calling for a great reset. A great reset? <laughs> that sounds more like buzzword bingo masking some nefarious plan for world domination. Hands yep. up, this kind of slogan hasn't gone down well. But all we really want to say is that we all have an opportunity to build a better world. And it's not surprising that people who've been disenfranchised by a broken system and right, pushed even further by it. the pandemic will suspect global leaders of conspiracy. But the way Yeah, yeah, so... Oh, does this sound like a conspiracy? Whoops, we're sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah! That's one of my favorite videos. It's so, I it's so, abs <laughs> it's so absurd. And we didn't get to the part, you stopped Andy before we got to the part, but there's a part coming up where they then show all the smiling faces of the great reset that should make us realize that they're actually not that bad, that they're all in it for us actually. Oh, right. And among the smiling faces on there is Vladimir Putin <laughs> himself. That didn't age very well. So even in their great reset apology video, they've got <laughs> <laughs> tyrannical authoritarian warmongers. <laughs> it's like they can't do anything right. They legitimately cannot well, do anything so, right. So Jim, uh, I mean, this, this is one kind of piece of evidence that it seemed like the, the world economic forum are reacting, like Justin said, to stuff that we've done. They've run away from the great reset name. Uh, they were having a conference that was going to be named the great reset and they changed it. They changed it to like the Davos agenda or something like that. Justin has had pieces uh, published in, in, you know, big publications that the World Economic Forum have challenged and tried to get the publishers to take down. So we know that they react to stuff that we do. So, Jim, what is it? Are they the nefarious Bond villains, uh, you know, that the, that we kind of suspect that they are? Or are they the 80s, <laughs> the 80s teenager bad boy with the new leather jacket? 
Well, yeah, I, I didn't like uh, Justin making that that uh, that analogy since I'm, I'm the oldest here and remember my 80s movies. And so I think that's a, a grave insult to William Zabaka, the greatest actor, uh, teenage actor of villains in the 80s movies of all time. Look it up. He was in Cobra Kai uh, <laughs> <laughs> and others. But uh, yeah, I think they, they look, these are the Bond villains. What I, what I find amazing, uh, aside from that video where they realized that their messaging was horrid, that people will be reflexively suspicious, if not horrified, by the term the Great Reset, uh, which, again, they had this agenda before COVID ever happened. It was ready to go, and they just were not going to blow that opportunity. But a hallmark of every totalitarian regime is this kind of hypersensitivity to criticism. Uh, in a free country... Um, you know, you are allowed to criticize your leaders. You're allowed to say what you like. And if they don't like it, they can go pound sand. In an authoritarian regime, if you criticize the leader, you could be thrown in jail or worse. And, you know, that's not to say the United States hasn't had presidents who are a little testy when it comes to the way they're talked about in public. Uh, Barack Obama was one of them, uh, even instructed uh, a columnist at The New York Times to stop making fun of his big ears. Mm -hmm. And they they happily obeyed because he's a Democrat. Uh but but again, the they they don't want you to talk. Is I, I actually really even can't figure this out. Maybe Justin and Chris can help me figure this out. So they need to get together for these big global summits. They need to keep everybody on the same page because you can't have a, a big global um, initiative. You can't have a big global agenda without all these leaders and all these countries being on board. And you do that by bringing them together, flying them in on private jets, whining and dining them. They're not eating cricket steaks. They're eating actual you know, Wagyu steaks, uh, the, the finest food in the world, to keep them on board, to keep the agenda moving forward. Yet at the same time, they try to pretend that this agenda doesn't exist. Uh, you know, I don't know how you can do both. I figure maybe they're just trying to run a scam that if they can keep the, uh, and we have another clip coming up uh, soon about, you know, they're worried, they are worried about social unrest and people protesting in the streets against this agenda. So that's why they're doing all this tamping down because they have to keep everybody calm enough until frankly, it's too late to turn around. Well, let, let's go ahead and play that last clip because I do want to reserve the rest of the episode for our kind of main topic. This is only supposed to be the intro part. Well, Johnny, just just real quick, can I just uh, uh, piggyback a little bit off of what uh, Jim was just saying? Sure. Uh, uh, I'm just going to uh, make some parallels to you know what's happening here in the United States. Um, when, whenever the left uh, comes out with a uh, position, you know that is questionable, they are uh, unwilling to. Uh, to allow any satire. So like Babylon B, when they start like questioning, <laughs> you know, whether uh, the uh, woman of the year can be a, you know, transgender male, what happens to them? They get kicked off of Twitter. Uh, so I, I think it's, I think it's the uh, thin skin mentality uh, that these people possess because they know that their policy positions are so superficial and so hollow that as soon as you start poking holes in them, that they are going to, uh, that those policy positions are, are going to be, uh, uh, exposed to, you know, to common sense, you know, oriented people. So that's why the uh, World Economic Forum or the CDC or these, you know, giant institutions that have so much power, why are they going after these, you know, like, like, you know, these uh, individuals or organizations like the Heartland Institute, when they are so much more powerful than us? I mean, the, the World Economic Forum's resources dwarf the Heartland Institute's resources. Yeah, they seem to be very, very uh, worried and concerned about when we just point out, hey, this is what you guys are actually doing. Hey, everybody, look what they're actually doing. 
So I think it shows that they are trying to hide the the reality of what they're pushing. And they are just so, uh, you know, scared of anyone poking fun at it and especially set, uh, set uh, you know, using satire to uh, expose it. Yeah, you know, like like Justin made a very careful point, uh, carefully made this point when he was when he was talking earlier, is that we we go uh, out of our way to direct quote these people. We go out of our way to show the videos of them talking because uh, the things that they say sound so crazy that if we paraphrase them, people wouldn't believe us. So that's <laughs> why we direct quote them so much. That's why we play these clips of Klaus Schwab. Andy, go ahead and play that uh, other clip that we have of of uh, this guy that looks like this is the objective. What kind of world do we want to build? What do we know? What did we learn? I think the world um, which uh, we want to create with the Great Reset has to be much more resilient. It has to be because security people will demand for more security. Um, physical security, health security. If we want to avoid uh, some kind of uh, social revolutions, and we have seen uh, the signs of anger on the streets uh, already the last weeks, um, so we have to address um, this issue to create a stronger inclusiveness. And finally, um, more sustainable. The next crisis is already waiting for us around the corner, and it is the climate crisis. Oh, shoot. The climate crisis, of course. All you of this is predicated on that. Um, so I, I, I just want everyone that's listening to this, sound off in the comments. I'm very curious of what your opinion is. Uh, given the two, are they the Bond villains, or are they actually just the high school bullies in an 80s movie? Uh, sound off. I'm very curious of what your response is. Justin, I'll give you the final word on this on this topic, but keep it short because I do want to get to our next topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the main thing for people to take away is that it is so important to have video clips of people, to have audio clips of people, to use their own words because it is very, very, very hard, no matter how powerful people are. When they're caught being authoritarians, mm -hmm. it's hard for them to run away from that. And they're scared of it. And it shows that regular people, especially in the modern era where we have the internet and we have citizen journalism and we have organizations like the Heartland Institute and stopping socialism and all the things we've been doing, we actually can have an impact. You don't have to be the World Economic Forum to have an impact. You don't have to be in government to have an impact. Um, a, a lot of this stuff that we've done over the past couple of years has really just been a handful of people doing really intense research, getting it into the hands of other uh, people with very large microphones right. and it's made a giant impact. So these people are scary to be sure, but uh, they, the reason they're afraid is because they know that if they get exposed, they're going to lose their power eventually. And then that's, that ultimately is the most terrifying thing for them. So we should oh. be concerned. We should be worried. We should respect the power and influence that they have, but we shouldn't shy away from shining a spotlight on it because that has proven to work and be effective. We're actually winning this battle in some ways, which seemed inconceivable two or three years ago. So, right. and, 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 and there's definitely an appetite among the people to learn about this stuff as your book, you know, shot to number one, 
on Amazon and New York Times bestseller list, you know, being one of the first uh, books to expose the Great Reset. So that shows that people are interested in this and they want to learn about it. But the architects of the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum, United Nations, and the, you know, these other organizations, they don't want the people to learn the truth about it. That's why they are so uh, concerned when, you know, people like Justin and, you know, others in Glenn Beck get out there and spread the word about what they're actually trying to do. Yeah, it looks like a lot of the people sounding off uh, think that they're going the Bond villain route. So maybe we shouldn't uh, maybe we shouldn't step off the gas and, and think that these people are less than what they are. I don't know. We'll see. We'll talk about it more surely in future episodes. But I want to move on. Uh, I want to move on to what I thought was going to be our main topic of the day, <laughs> which is the fact that just the other day, Joe Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act. As we've discussed before, this bill has nothing to do with reducing inflation. The name was just a lie so that they could pass legislation filled with massive subsidies for wind and solar and electric vehicles. Uh, we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, the subject was covered in last week's episode of Climate Change Roundtable. So if you're interested uh, in that, go back and watch those episodes. But I wanted to focus on a couple of macro trends that are becoming increasingly impossible to ignore. The first one being... All of this green stuff, whether it's intended to be or not, is just a money-making scam. Now, we could talk about the subsidies that will now pour into the politically connected green energy companies. We can retread the stories about Solyndra and the failed solar farms in the desert. But the world, uh, sorry, but the Inflation Reduction Act has already given us another example to talk about. So in the legislation, people will now be able to cash in on a new $7,500 electric vehicle tax credit. So now when Pete Buttigieg tells you to buy a $60,000 EV when gas prices go up, uh, you'll only have to pay $52,500 to roll off the lot in the new car. Well, Jim, you brought this to my attention, so why don't you finish this story? Uh, what did Ford do in light of this new $7,500 tax credit? Yeah, they raised their prices by, wait for it, $7,500 or even <laughs> a little bit more. Uh, when, when this happened, I was like, as it was, as it was being contemplated, I was like, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, does anybody looked at how, uh, what has happened to college tuition prices over the last 30 years? Every time, um, you know, politicians say college is unaffordable. We need to give kids money so that they can go to college or make them make it easier for them to take out loans. In fact, we'll even federally guarantee those loans. And what has happened since I was in college, you know, and I graduated in 1992, was that the more that the government subsidized college tuition, the higher the tuition went. It was, it's, you know, it, tuition, college tuition inflation is like this, while regular inflation was like this. The exact same thing was going to happen with this. I knew it was going to happen. I think I said it on this podcast or another one. And then lo and behold, literally the day after the bill um, was signed, or even before it was signed, I think, they raised their prices the same way. Uh, it's like, I think one of the subsidies actually is to get, I think it's $7,500 for a new, and I guess an electric vehicle has to qualify. You don't, I don't think you get to use it on a Hummer or a, or even maybe even like the top line Tesla, but something, uh, you get $7,500 for a new electric vehicle. And I think it was $5,000 for a used electric vehicle. Who the hell is going to buy a used electric vehicle? The, the, the batteries on these things are, are diminished already. I mean, at absolute maximum, um, you know, range, you might go 250 miles with it. Try getting a, uh, who, who wants to buy a, a used Nissan Leaf that's like seven years old with a $5,000 credit? You'll be lucky to get that thing to work and back if you live 10 miles from work. 
I mean, this this whole thing was completely predictable. This entire everything in this bill is a is a is a payoff to the so-called green energy industry in this country. Uh, and it's mostly for for companies that don't need it or individuals that don't need it. Um, Bill Gates had a lot to do with passing this bill, by the way, um, which we might get into here a little bit later. But this has always been a big payoff. It, there's there's really nothing. We're going to talk about nuclear power, too. But there, there's nothing in this bill that does anything to help Americans. But it does help big donors to the Democrat Party, which are all these, um, you know, these green scam artist companies. Yeah, yeah I, this is this is just real. This is such a great story because <laughs> for, for a variety of reasons. But the biggest is that when you're looking at let's just take basic economic principles, right? Because clearly there's no just basic understanding of economics within the Democratic Party anymore. Maybe, maybe by the end of this, maybe you'll think differently. All right. But the pri the reason prices are the way they are is because that's that business, so in this case, Ford, has figured out that this is what people are willing to pay of the money that they have access to. This is what they're willing to pay for a car. So if you add a subsidy, a giant subsidy to it that comes from a government from a, or a tax credit or whatever, so now people have more money to spend on it. The amount of money that they are spending is still theoretically willing to spend on an electric car. It's still theoretically the same. So now they've got the tax credit on top of, let's say they're willing to spend $50,000 on an electric car. All right. Now they have a, a $7,500 tax credit. So now they're willing to spend $57,500 on that car. That's how economics works because for them, it's still $50,000 that they're willing to spend. Nothing has changed. They're not all of a sudden going to say, well, I'm still only willing to spend $50,000 because now they have $57,500 available to them. This is basic economics. So when the price of the car goes up to $57,500 to match the fact that the demand from the consumer is that they're willing to pay 50,000 and now they have an additional 7,500 coming from the government that they're willing to pay the 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 average number of cars sold doesn't go up because nothing's changed you haven't actually increased demand for the vehicle it's it's you're just moving all you've done is given ford a bunch of extra money $7,500 per car. That's what you've done. So if you, so then what the government does is this, they say, well, okay, we're not selling more electric cars. The problem is we didn't give people a big enough tax credit. If only we had given them more money, <laughs> then they would have bought more cars. So they give more money. This is exactly what Jim's point was about college is exactly what has happened with college. Okay. Price tuition's too high. So Let's give people more money or make it easier for people to get money so that it, it makes it easier for them to go to college. But all that does is signal to the college they can keep increasing prices. So next time around, they'll come and say, you know, if we just give another 10 grand in tax credits, we'll get more cars sold. And Ford says, great, we'll raise our prices by $10,000. <laughs> and all that happens is Ford keeps making more and more money subsidized from the government in this giant crony scheme and don't think for a second that there aren't lobbyists for the auto oh, industry yeah, and the auto no workers pushing for these things to happen because why, why would they, right? If, if, if the way it works is simply, well, now there's a $7,500 tax credit. So prices stay exactly the same. Then why would Ford care? It doesn't help Ford. 
right? Makes no difference to them. The reason they care is because now they get to raise their prices and make more money. It's a giant scheme to give these big corporations massive, massive, massive amounts of money of taxpayer money. And, And now you're in a situation where if you're a taxpayer who doesn't buy an electric car, you're really screwed because you're now paying for a, a tax credit that you're not even going to use. Yeah. And on and on and some on and upper on middle it goes class, forever. For some and then, upper middle class person buying a Tesla. <laughs> and, then, and then in five years, these same Democrats who push this bill through will be decrying these corporations for taking advantage of tax loopholes oh, no, that no. they put into the law. You know, it's a no, cycle and, and that goes put, round and round and round, and man. What will, and how will they prove it? They'll point to the profits. They'll say, look at all the profits they've made. The profits come from you. You <laughs> printed the money well, and us. gave it to them. And and that's, yeah, well, yes, except they've already spent all that money. So now they're just inventing it out of thin air and we're paying for it through inflation. Exactly. That's really how it's happening. But it's like, this is just the way, and it's not just this one thing. This is the way everything works now. Every yeah. single thing works this way. It is yeah. a giant scam. Exactly. Exactly. Chris, I, I want to go to you next, but I have yeah. to tee up this uh, this conversation about nuclear power because this is the other kind of macro trend that I wanted to discuss, that the left continues to reject nuclear power. Uh, as we've discussed, nuclear power is much more green, much more carbon sensitive than wind and solar. It's far more reliable than wind and solar. Uh, it's far more equipped to power a modern economy than wind and solar, yet the left runs away from it. So I, I, I saw this article that was written by our own Linnea Lucan that was published in the American Thinker. It was titled Green Should Embrace Nuclear Microreactors. And it made me want to talk about this. In the piece, she, uh, she talks about the Inflation Reduction Act, and she talks about the various subsidies offered to the uh, you know, energy sectors. And according to an analysis that she, she cites, it says, that wind and solar stands to receive $113 billion in tax credits by 2031. Amazingly, uh, oil and gas activities also get some money, $29 billion. But poor old nuclear power just gets the scraps, $3.4 billion. The piece then goes on to talk about some of the arguments that that we've discussed here about how uh, much more environmentally harmful wind and solar is and talks about how the Pentagon approved micro reactors that are even safer than our typical nuclear power. Yet, despite all of this, the left still seems extremely disinterested in all of this. So, I mean, Chris, we've had this conversation before where it's like we, we know that there's like the levels of people that are kind of pushing for all of this green energy, uh, um, renewable energy, I put those in quotes, and that the people, you know, there's some element of people that are true believers. They really think that this is the route forward. And then there's people way up at the World Economic Forum that, you know, I suggest that are kind of using this all as a ruse to get more control over society and the economy. But then I think that there's all of these people that we just talked about, Ford and, and other ones that are stand to get all the, you know, the cylindras of the world that stand to get all of these subsidies that are just doing it for the money. So, so what's, what's your uh, what's your point of view on all of this? OK, well, I kind of want to just, you know, pivot back to what we were talking about earlier. And I want to just, you know, just put a li- little different perspective on this. Uh, as we can see, uh, the American people are struggling. Two thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, food pantry uh Food pantries are, you know, overwhelmed by people who literally cannot afford to put uh, food on the table. Um, I could just, you know, go on and on and just, you know, cite endless statistics showing, you know, how much the average American is struggling. 
Okay. And then uh, on CNN, right after the uh, bill was signed, Jennifer Granholm, the uh, energy secretary was on and she was uh, being interviewed about how this is going, how the Inflation Reduction Act and these uh, energy tax credits are going to help, you know, the, uh, you know, everyday Americans. And she was, she was saying, well, if they spend, you know, $70,000, then they're going to get this, you know, $7,500, you know, tax credit for, you know, a, a, a vehicle or a, you know, new uh, washing machine or, you know, whatever solar panels on their homes. But that just goes to show, and I mean, you guys hit on this, but I just, just really want to just uh, emphasize this, how out of touch they are and how much they just don't care about the plight of, of, you know, struggling Americans due to their economic policies that have put us in this position. Americans are barely able to put gas in their car, barely able to put clothes on, you know, their their kids' backs these days. People are having uh, trouble just uh, buying enough uh, school supplies for their kids to go back to school. And these people are so out of touch. And, you know, th- th- their only response is, well, Go buy a new uh, EV and we'll give you a, you know, a, a, a tax subsidy. It's just it, it is so frustrating, but it goes to show how out of touch they are with the American people. And on this nuclear thing, I, I you know, I, it just boggles my mind why they do not uh, embrace nuclear uh, as a viable alternative to coal or even fossil fuels, because nuclear is safe. It is it is affordable. And we can, you know, obviously, uh, you know, uh, use nuclear to uh, t- in our power grid, you know, if they truly want to, uh, s- you know, stem uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Right. But it, but they don't want to do that because there's not a bunch of money to be made in the in uh, nuclear power like there is with their, you know, green energy you know, scams that they've been running since the Obama administration. Well, uh, Jim, I mean, we've talked about these stories before about like in, in Europe and, and Germany specifically about like just skyrocketing, skyrocketing energy prices and all of this. Yet, uh, despite that and despite being like cut off from Russian oil that Germany is like completely dependent on, they're still going to move forward with shutting down the country's three remaining nuclear plants. And then like California, who suffers like rolling blackouts just about every year now. They're still looking to close down some of their nuke plants there. Like it, it, and in both of these cases, it appears as though like Germany and California might be reversing course on this, but not out of like a change of heart, but pure desperation. <laughs> so like, why, Jim? Like the question is why? Like this is this is this bugs me to no end. Why they'll they'll pursue wind and solar despite all of the problems, yet they'll just completely ignore, flat out reject nuclear power. Give me a theory. Why? I, I think Chris, I think Chris nailed it. Uh, and because there's no, there's no scam money to be made out of nuclear. Nuclear power actually works. Nuclear power does not require um, land area the size of California to power <laughs> uh, the entire state of California to power. I think only the, to power the United States for only forty three percent of the time at absolute peak capacity, which is what wind generally gives you. Uh, because there's just there's just no scam money in nuclear power. You you build a nuclear power plant. And it's uh, on a pretty small footprint and it'll run for decades uh, with no trouble and it will give people cheap, plentiful energy. It's a wonderful thing to have in a very diverse um, electric grid because it can basically be counted on to never uh, to never give you any trouble uh, and to always be on and to be, again, creating energy in the cheapest possible way. Germany, I believe, is bringing their three nuclear plants back uh, online. This is after... 
this is because they wanted to go all pretty much all wind energy vende is the uh, is the name of their program that's been going on for almost a decade now. And it's been such a disaster. They're actually firing up coal plants again because they have no choice. <laughs> Uh, and so, and now they're actually going to keep their, their new plants. And again, the dumbest thing in the world, I mean, we are ruled by morons all across the earth. Uh, you know, Germany wants to decommission all of their nuke plants because of Fukushima, as if there's going to be a tsunami that's going to take out their, uh, nuke plants about 300 miles inland or something. I don't know. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, so I think Germany is putting those back on because they have no choice. Uh, and, and California, you know, I used to live in Southern California and I would drive from Los Angeles to San Diego on the five freeway, as they call it. Uh, and about halfway there, you would look to your right and you would see a nuclear power plant right on the ocean. I think it's called the Diablo Canyon uh, nuclear power plant. And I believe I just saw a story this week that California had, had been planning to decommission that nuclear plant for, I don't know, at least a decade, but for quite a while, it was a done deal. Mm -hmm. um, I told you yesterday, Donnie, it's like, I bet all the employees, they've already packed all their stuff in boxes and are ready to go. <laughs> right. and, but no, no, we need to keep it on because California is going to run out of power if they try to rely on the wind and solar and all the other, and you know, unicorn poop and pixie dust and all the other stuff they think it creates energy in this country. And why I think you're going to see, uh, I guess, maybe a resurgence in the idea of nuclear power plants. And this has been talked about for a long time, the, the story by Linnea that you put on on the screen, these, you know, basically micro uh, nuke plants that are, you know, not designed like there's one, there's a nuclear power plant in Limerick, Pennsylvania. I used to live in Pennsylvania too. I used to drive past that all the time in Eastern PA, you know, and it's this enormous nuclear plant and it basically powers up all of Eastern Pennsylvania. And, you know, that's not the kind, that's probably not the future of, of nuclear plants, maybe 20, 30 years from now, but, but micro ones that just power one city or even just neighborhoods or you know, that stuff. There's lots of technology that we can advance if we want to embrace it. And the reason I think we're going to go that way is because the alternative is that they may outlaw fossil fuels, but you'll still be able to light a torch and bring your pitchfork and get these guys out of office for keeping <laughs> everybody in the dark and cold all the time. There is a real danger. Klaus Schwab said it in that in the clip we played earlier, that they are concerned about civil unrest and people in the streets overthrowing their government and their authority, uh, which is why they try to have to keep them just just comfortable enough to keep that from happening. Well, and keeping these new plants on is a way to make sure that that does happen, that people are have just enough power to survive. So, so Justin, Chris and Jim have, uh, have focused more in on just like the, the money that could be just funneled into these things. And I think that that's probably largely like at that level, the reasoning for this. But call me a conspiracy theorist. I'm sorry. I'll put that warning out there right now that like I feel like this has more to do with just the control of society. And it's a lot easier to control society when there's uh, abundant scarcity as a uh, compared to abundance in a world of abundance and everyone's doing well off like nobody wants to be controlled. I'm doing well off. Get off my back type of thing. But in a world where we're limited, uh, when there's a lot more scarcity, there's not as much energy, energy is expensive and all of that, it really kind of ushers in this dependence uh, on people on the system and, in the, and on the government. And I mm -hmm. think that that's the reason why that we're pursuing wind and solar so much is because those people that want that control know that it's going to uh, push us towards a world of more scarcity as opposed to abundance and, and nuclear wouldn't do that. That would be the pathway to abundance. What do you think? Am I gone off the deep end? Do I need to put on a tinfoil hat? I mean, I think I think that that the left, there are always lots of different motivations on the left for all kinds of, of policy positions that they take. And I think 
that there is a element of of the left, especially the very far environmentalist part of it, that does not want truly affordable, truly abundant energy. That they don't, especially clean energy. They don't want that because mm -hmm. what it means is it will become much easier to build. And the more you build, the more nature you destroy, the more nature you destroy, the more the planet cries out and we <laughs> have to bow down to Mother Earth and blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> they don't want that. In fact, the things that they often talk about are thing, if you get into the really far edges of this, are things like rewilding, where we literally move humans out of communities and allow allow nature to just sort of reconsume these areas sort of like uh, what happened in Chernobyl, for example. Right. right. Um, that obviously happened because of the nuclear disaster, but the same, same effect. Good if you example. Look at pictures of Chernobyl, <laughs> yeah. If you look, it's very, if you look at pictures of Chernobyl, it's like all it's full of plants and trees and mm -hmm. like there's deer walking around. And I think that's what With a lot of people want. Yeah. <laughs> But I would argue that the main reason, I would argue the main reason that people on the left are not calling for nuclear energy is because it's not a jobs program. And that's the real thing. See, mm -hmm. with, with yeah. wind and solar, you need, you need to uh, build such vast infrastructure to make that work. And you need to completely overhaul the entire system. With nuclear, you don't really need to do that. You just need to build plants in the right spots and hook it up. To the electric grid and it'll work out fine but with but the amount of building you have to do and infrastructure you'd have to do to actually run the country mostly on wind and solar would be so vast and so expensive and require so many jobs that they can sell it as a jobs program as a way to justify doing this this great really crazy thing right and I think there are a couple of reasons why you get people who want to do that. Obviously there's political benefits to it and everything else, but I also just think that the left generally speaking has no idea how to actually have economic growth within their philosophy. It's mm -hmm. not possible. Right. Everything becomes the broken window fallacy where we just run around destroying things that already work and then rebuilding them to have mm -hmm. a jobs program. And that is, that is essentially, this is the greatest, the I, the green new deal type idea where we're going to destroy every part of our energy industry or almost all of it, rebuild it completely from scratch is the greatest broken window fallacy program that's ever been conceived of. And, and the big, one of the biggest jobs programs ever created, that's why they call it the green new deal, like the new deal, right? In the 1930s. So mm -hmm. why... Why do they want to do this? Because it would require millions of people working in effect directly or indirectly for the government. It would require massive jobs programs and all the benefits that come from the government making these elaborate promises. I think that's really what's at the heart of all of this. I, I right, think it's, but that, it's that, that goes, jobs. But that goes to that dependence. You know, that, that means that society is dependent on the government and this this overarching ruling class because they need those jobs, right? I don't know, Chris. You wanna you wanna well, jump well, down? I think th I think Justin brings up a really uh, important and interesting point here with the New Deal because before the New Deal, uh, the the footprint of the federal government was minimal. After the New Deal, the federal government's relationship to the people changed fundamentally, and I think that the uh, 
AOCs and the Bernie Sanders, they said, wow, look what look what uh, FDR was able to do with the New Deal uh, after the Great Depression 100 years ago. Let's do that again after COVID. But this time, instead of, you know, doing the Civilian Conservation Corps and all that kind of stuff, we'll just hire hundreds of thousands of Americans to become government workers to build, you know, these make work programs. Uh, I, I think that's a very interesting point. And I think that that definitely is uh, relevant here. And also after the uh, New Deal, the Democratic Party's constituency uh, changed uh, fundamentally as well. They had a whole bunch of new constituencies that were previously Republican voters that became uh, New Deal Democrats. And those New Deal Democrats voted Democratic for generations. And I think that they see the writing on the wall and they're saying, "Uh oh, we need another one of these ways to get a whole new generation of people on board with our agenda. Mm-hmm. So what's the easiest way to do that? Make work programs and uh, and also increasing the welfare state, which has also happened extensively under the New Deal and under FDR. And they were pursuing the same thing on steroids. Yeah, the difference is the New Deal actually built stuff. The Tennessee Valley Authority actually brought electricity and modern world to Appalachia. We built the Hoover Dam. We wouldn't be able to do any of that stuff today. So all this Green New Deal work, make work projects really is stuff that is not very productive and is not doesn't do anything any good for society. In fact, it will harm society. Mm-hmm. If they really go through with building all of these solar farms and wind farms out there, the ecological devastation that that will uh, that will wreak on this country is really even hard to co- hard to contemplate or or to quantify. Um, anyway, that's just a big <laughs> distinction, this, I think. I mean, the, yeah. the New Deal, like it or not, they they actually did stuff. They got stuff done and things that are actually. But it, it, but it also misallocated, you know, capital and it prolonged the yes. Great Depression it, and and made it worse. And they're they're going on the same track here. Instead of saying after the COVID nineteen pandemic and you know the government created a recession that uh, you know was part and parcel to that, they're saying, well, let's just double down on on, on the New Deal, which is just going to prolong the economic pain that we're all experiencing. Yep, we are uh, we are long here. We're already past the hour mark, everybody. So, uh, like I like I mentioned the first topic, I do want people to kind of sound off in the comments below this video. I'm very interested to see what you think about the left's rejection of nuclear power and why they're doing that. Um, so, yeah, sound off in there. I'm very curious to what you think, but I do want to thank everyone for tuning into this episode of the In The Tank podcast. Like I said, for those audio-only listeners that are probably catching this on a Friday, you can join us a day earlier at uh, Thursdays at noon Central Time for the live show that's being streamed on Facebook and Twitter and Rumble and YouTube, where you can join in the conversation, leave your comments and questions. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, if you'd like uh, to hit that subscribe button, write a review for us. It'd be greatly appreciated. Share this content, leave a comment, all things that you could do to help break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at In The Tank Pod. And if you have any questions or comments uh, or suggestions for the show, feel free to email us at In The Tank Podcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and visit benefit.heartland.org to come to our benefit dinner October 21st. Fantastic. Justin, same question. At Justin T. Haskins on Facebook, Twitter, Parler, Getter, and all the other social media platforms. Fantastic. And Chris, what do you have to pitch today? 
Uh, stop in socialism.com. We got some new stories about ESG and the Inflation Reduction Act. So please go check them out. And I just want to also uh, uh, tell the viewers, please come to the benefit dinner. It'd be really cool to meet everybody in person and, uh, you know, get to know them uh, more intimately. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. And uh, um, uh, um, what am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs>